0: This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level.
1: Good evening, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, per usual, coming to you live from the fabulous Top Step podcasting studio on beautiful South Jefferson Street in historic Chicago, Illinois. Where the stars are out tonight, and by that I mean that we have a very special guest in the studio today with Jeff Carter, Narissa Brown. She is a professor of accountancy and a faculty fellow at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's also published some incredible research on the capital market consequences of financial reporting and the link between firm value and political corruption. Which isn't something super interesting to Top Step, a firm that resides in the famously ethical and politically virtuous city of Chicago. Regulations and political oversight have huge consequences for trading and the markets, so I think this is definitely an interview that you'll find interesting. Plus, Nerissa is just plain wonderful, which is always a plus. But before we get to the interview, it would be cruel and unusual of me not to get a check on the markets... From the boss tweet of Forex himself, Mark Meadows, in this week's Market Reaction.
2: We're in a news-driven market. But what you think about President Trump, impeachment, politics, Brexit, Israeli elections, it doesn't matter. The market is going to do what it's going to do. Your job is to react. That's why it's so important to be judicious about how frequently you're in a position. If you're trading all the time, a lot of your time should be spent in cash. If it's not, and you're struggling to stay profitable, then think about that. But this is why it's so dangerous in a news-driven market. If you were long the market when the news broke, you see it as a nothing. Market selling off on this? That's absurd. Why are they listening to this? If you were short, though, you'd applaud the move, even though you got lucky. You'd think you were fortuitous and saw it coming. But either way, you're not listening to the market. You're focused on yourself. The key to trading well on an intraday basis is listening to the market. What's the most important thing to the market right now? And how can I read that into my next trade? If your focus stays there, you will trade better. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. Traders, I don't either tell you that
1: certain market participants and corporations might not always be on the level. Sometimes there are some downright shenanigans going on out there, and that's why it's important to have a robust oversight system. The whole industry only works when people have confidence, and folks only have confidence when things are fair. Today's guest for our Limit Up interview is Narissa Brown, an academic accountant who has researched the effects of political corruption on firm value and economic efficiency. And if I know one thing about our host Jeff Carter, it's that he's not a fan of political corruption, especially in Chicago. In fact, he's kind of like a venture capital Batman, so I'm super interested to see where this conversation goes. Therefore, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy today's Limit Up interview between Jeff Carter and Professor Narissa Brown.
0: Welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of TopStepTrader.com. My name is Jeff Carter. I blog at PointsAndFigures.com, and you can find me on Twitter at PointsFigures. Today, we're going to be talking with Gee's College of Business Accountancy Professor, Narissa Brown. She's down in Champaign at the University of Illinois. She's recently joined the faculty there, and she is the PwC Professor of Accountancy. Is that correct, Narissa?
3: Well, I'm the PwC Faculty Fellow, and I am also started a new role as Academic Director of our Bachelor's and Master's programs here
0: oh wow that's awesome that's awesome. Well, welcome to the program i'm really glad to have you on because um, your research caught my eye and it's fascinating and I think it'll be fascinating for the uh, top step trader audience
3: great well, thanks for having me
0: yeah, so talk to me kind of about your background a little bit. You grew up in Jamaica, and you know how did you find your way to champagne
3: well, you know took a Long path to champagne, you know, a path you know exceeding about twenty years. But yeah, I came to the U.S. from from Jamaica to pursue a Ph.D. in accounting. Um, I went to the University of Maryland, so I was right outside of the D.C. area for about six years. In Jamaica, I did my undergrad and graduate degrees in accounting, and I was able to work for about a year and a half as a financial analyst, you know, one of our largest conglomerates in the Caribbean, but, you know, really enjoyed the work environment there. But, you know, at some point kind of really missed the academic process. And so I actually, you know, went back to my university, met with several of my professors, and just talked about kind of what an academic career would entail. And it sounded like something that would really be a good fit. And so they recommended that I look into programs both in the U.S. and the U.K. The U.S. PhD model, I think, made more sense to me. And so I applied, got into Maryland, and you know, packed my bags and <laughs> came what, over.
0: So accountancy, what attracted you to that specialty as opposed to, let's say, finance or economics or, or some other part of the business canon, shall we say?
3: You know, good question, because when I started university, I pretty much had no idea of what I wanted to do. I, I had some idea that I wanted to do business, but, you know, what area of business I wasn't sure about, you know, or bachelor's program back in Jamaica, we had kind of like a generalist degree called management studies. And then, you know, my mom was actually an accountant. And at first... Oh,
0: I- Okay. it helps to have the familial connection right yeah yeah
3: i mean at first i was like there's no way i'm going to be an accountant like my mom right
0: Right. so yeah did she make you put like cheerios on the counter the same amount on the right and left and stuff like that and then when you subtract no i'm just kidding no not not really i
3: mean she she did you know accounting for you know one of our civil agencies you know we we call them ministries which kind of would be one of the federal departments here in in the U.S. so I got to see a lot with respect to just like budgeting from a government standpoint yeah and and so she did well in that that area and she said well you know if you don't want to do accounting that's fine but maybe do management studies where you get to see a little bit of everything and then choose what you want to do and for some reason accounting just you know, came to me as I just had a knack for it. The one thing I really liked about accounting was the fact that even though we have quite a bit of accounting standards and rules, there's still a lot of gray areas. And I think that's what really attracted me to doing accounting research. So
0: so professor, that is a very interesting statement because I think that most people see accounting as black and white you know, it either is or it isn't. And I don't think people really understand accounting. They don't understand the difference between cash and accrual and stuff. So where are the gray areas? And then it could be a whole like 10 hour presentation about it. Is there a way (laughs) to sort of sum it up? Like, so normal people can understand why there's gray areas and where they are?
3: Well, a lot of the gray areas, you know, just in my perspective, Deals with the fact that when you're trying to measure things, you know, from a financial perspective, there are some things that you just cannot measure in a tangible sense. And I'll bring up an example. Last week, I was, you know, I'm a member of a committee that provides comment letters to the FASB on standard setting matters. And, you know, we right. are in the process of writing a comment with respect to the process of accounting for, for goodwill, which oh, is, wow. you know, a huge intangible that sits on oh my gosh, yeah. books. But, you know, the question is, what is goodwill? How do you actually mm-hmm. measure it? How do you measure something that you can't, you know, pick up and feel like, like a tangible asset? And, you know, for example, with goodwill, we, we can only measure it when a company purchases another company and then, you know, the accounting rules pretty much say that, okay, you can measure, measure as many assets as you can or net assets as you can. And then whatever is left over between the purchase price and the value of everything that you can measure is presumably goodwill. And so that to me is kind of where you have very gray areas, um, especially yes. in, in companies that are you know based heavily in the technology industry that just have a lot of right. tangibles you know things that generate value for companies that we just cannot measure from an accounting standpoint and human capital is 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 a clear example you know the talent that your your workforce has provides value to to an entity but we can't put a dollar figure on that value and so That's where a lot of the gray areas exist in accounting. And there's a whole host of other gray areas that I can get into. (laughs) But I don't don't think there's enough time to show for that.
0: (laughs) No, there there probably isn't. Um, Just an aside, I was a delegate to the G7I7, first ever in Italy a couple years ago. And we had a long discussion about B corporations. And my point was, hey, if if you're going to set up a company and, and measure social good, there's got to be some sort of gap standards that you can measure across companies to compare them so that everything's equal, like gap standards with financial accounting, and there just aren't any for B-corporations at all. So it's all sort of this billy-nilly measurement, um, or sometimes not even a measurement. How would Milton Friedman say it? A normative process rather than a positive process.
3: Exactly, and you know, you touched on a very good point in the sense that, you know, general lack of standards in certain areas and also diversity in standards, you know, across countries and and even within U.S. standards, there's also diversity in, in practice with respect to how standards are applied to any given entity. And, you know, that also creates grayness in accounting and you know, reduces comparability with respect to, you know, looking at a portfolio of firms and figuring out which ones you should invest in.
0: Interesting. That brings up another point. So in your most recent publication,
2: what you
0: tried to do is the relationship between monitoring mechanisms and consequences of political corruption. And you found that firm-level economics and monitoring mechanisms moderate the negative relation between corruption and firm value. And the consequences for political corruption are greater for firms operating in low-rent product markets and less for firms subject to external monitoring by state governments or monitoring induced by disclosure transparency. So let's talk about that, because I think that it's super, super fascinating. How did you decide to look into this particular thing, political corruption and its effects on the value of the firm, I've never seen anybody really look into that at all, other than like Stigler looking at, you know, rent-seeking activities at the government level to try to get policy and lobbying to do stuff. But I've never seen anything like this direct.
3: Yeah, so my interest in this area, you know, comes from my overall interest in kind of just with respect to how, you know, behavioral factors and, and local factors, you know, kind of affect firms and, you know, even thinking about firms, you know, accounting process and kind of what they disclose to, to the markets. You know, me diving into this area, I was prompted by working with a former PhD student who, you know, partly did part of his PhD training in, in finance. And, and actually there is like a very large literature on the effects of corruption in economics and also in, in finance, less so in accounting, you know, thinking about right. how, you know, corruption kind of, you know, affects the accounting and financial reporting process. And so the neat thing in, in working with, with this student, this was actually his, his second year paper research project, I should say, as a PhD student that became a full-blown paper. And the neat thing, at least the innovative thing, I think about our work is that it's hard to measure corruption in any given country or, or area, and it's even harder to measure corruption within, within the U.S. So most of our corruption measures mm-hmm. are, are at the country level. For example, there are transparency indices and corruption indices that are published each year. But we were were definitely able to leverage Department of Justice data on the number of convictions within a U.S. court district and then use that to kind of capture a general sense of the level of political corruption within a U.S. locality. Interesting. And then
0: that brings up a whole nother thing that, that people don't realize happens is when professors does in, in academia design models, they decide on different variables to measure and then they try to control other ones. But it'd be curious to me is like, what did you look at as a variable? And then you decided, eh, that doesn't really work in this model.
3: To be honest, I I don't think we, you know, thought about it that way in the sense that we knew what we wanted to look at as kind of a, a research question, and then we we thought about several factors that we kind of would have to control for, in a sense that corruption and value, you know, is a relationship where people can always say, you know, kind of the chicken and the egg story. You know, is it that we're just finding that? Firms with, with lower value just tend to locate in, in corrupt areas, and it's not mm-hmm. a it's not really a, a matter that corruption actually decline. You know, is actually a, a negative factor with respect to affecting firm value uh, in, a, right. in a negative way. And so that's kind of how we kind of attacked the the research process. Of course, there are several, I would say, regional factors that we, we considered, and um, off the you know top of my head, I can't remember if we had put them in the model or, or, or not. For example, controlling for you know education and income levels at, at the regional level is something that we definitely considered because studies have shown that corruption is kind of tied to various regional factors, such as the level of education, the level of income within an area. So trying to think back, maybe we included those measures and it didn't really change or or basic basic finding.
0: Has the study been replicated yet? Because it's pretty new. Has anybody asked you for your data so they could try to replicate it?
3: So this data that we have is publicly available. And so you know, we were one of the first that actually went and hand collected this data because we pretty Mm -hmm. much had to code the data directly from DOJ reports that they submit to Congress. That being said, I mean, we had a kind of a running start with respect to gathering this data pretty early on. But other researchers have gathered this data as well. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you see newer studies out there kind of Tying corruption with the level of innovation within within a region, um, tying corruption to how firms manage earnings.
0: Does corruption curb innovation?
3: Yep. So the student who the former student who was on this paper, um, actually him and my other co-author on this paper, they have uh, another study that's forthcoming in a top tier finance publication also showing that in regions where corruption is very high, innovation also tends to be to be low. Interesting.
0: You know, I've read the study and one of the things that you found was if there's sort of two party rule, there's less Mm -hmm. corruption. One party rule formats a ton of corruption. And I would assume you know, and this is just an assumption on my part. If if it persists, one party rule, like we have in Chicago for the last 100 years or <laughs> the state of Illinois for the last 40 or a place like California for the last 20, that corruption levels will go even higher. And my question would be on the innovation front, Silicon Valley sits in California heavily Democratic-controlled state, one-party rule. Not, I'm not picking on Democrats, but they seem to be still very innovative. So my question is, is there an opportunity cost to innovation? Like, they're, they're innovative, but they could be that much more innovative because of one-party rule and corruption or, or not. That would be my pushback. Because in a place like, let's say, New Orleans or Chicago right. or New Jersey, there really isn't a lot of innovation.
3: Yeah, so of course, everything is all, all relative. You know, one point that we can make from our study is that when you have split party rule, or the whole notion of inter party competition kind of provides a check, provides a set of checks and balances with respect to corruption, because each party is monitoring the other party. Now, various localities, it's 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 then up to them to to put in other checks and balances if there is single party rule or without knowing exactly what other checks and balances are in place within, you know, as you, you brought up California, they could have various checks and balances that kind of mitigate that there is one party rule for a long period of time. But again, everything is all relative, as, as you, you said, could there actually be more innovation in in that state? And that's, that's a question that I'm not sure if I can answer. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I get it. You know, where that question kind of comes from is Roberts, um, who does a great podcast called Econ Talk, looked mm-hmm. at sort of public policy and GDP and if the middle class was doing better today than they ever were. Mm-hmm. And he said, they're doing better but they could be doing about what they could surmise. You know, they're exactly accurate, but about 25% better if public policy would have been better in certain areas, whatever. And so that's kind of kind of what I was getting at there. And then what about a place like, so I live in Chicago, um, corruption, legendary, historical. Um, how does it impact sort of companies that set up here and how much does it cost taxpayers per year?
3: I mean, in our study again this is just kind of looking at the average but you know overall we we did find there's an average of a 4% decline in, in firm value when you know corruption ticks up you know one point from from our paper is that firms you know wherever you choose to to locate then you know think Clearly about the, the policies that are in place and if there are potential corrupting influences, and then figure out how you're going to to manage those influences by putting mechanisms in place within your own firm to to make sure that those corrupting influences don't have a nevi- negative impact on on your firm and so you know one thing I did. A little bit after we put out the study, when it got accepted, and you know we had other journalists kind of reached out to us, is, you know when we actually just pull the data for the number of convictions across the, the different districts in, in Illinois, you know we actually find that in the northern part of Illinois, the number of convictions have actually been trending downwards interesting over. over you know, the last, that's
0: the entire region, not the city of Chicago, right?
3: That's the entire region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There if I recall, there are three US court districts in Illinois. We do see a downward trend in the number of convictions in the northernmost district, which would include, you know, Cook County. Yeah. But surprisingly, the number of convictions in the southernmost part of the state actually you know, trended upwards. Interesting. That That is interesting. Pay attention to.
0: And you didn't, you didn't pull like just the city of Chicago separate and look at
3: that. Um, We are unable to do that because the data is, is cut by district and not by county or city.
0: Right. Okay. That's cool. Interesting. So could you make a blanket statement that if you're a publicly traded company, um, like let's say McDonald's or Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME Group, or you know some of the different ones that headquarter here, Archer Daniel Midland, that your firm value is four percent lower than it otherwise would be had you been in a non-corrupt town headquartered or state.
3: I mean that's the general takeaway from from mm-hmm. from the analysis when we look at upticks in in corruption. And, you know, that 4% that we're quoting is looking at kind of a one standard deviation change, you know, which is a pretty pretty sizable change. And so in the paper, we talk about, well, if you're supposed to move your firm from one of the lowest districts one of the districts with the lowest level of corruption to another district with one of the highest level of corruption then then we kind of see that that 4% dip however again this is this is kind of just in um, research talk <laughs> in the sense that firms don't often switch locations that frequently and so we can see that materializing in the data on average um unfortunately we just didn't Got have firms kind of switching location for us to, to 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 say you know hey yeah
0: yeah it's not a liquid it's not liquid it would be called a lumpy exactly. yeah. a lumpy yeah. transaction yeah right yeah, right yeah could you make the same assumption so so like public firms we can kind of see the the stock price it's traded every day what about private equity and private firms or venture-backed firms, would they also experience the same effects of a 4% decline in in shareholder value that the public firms do, or is it different? Because the corruption presumably affects them the same. And it may be more costly for the smaller firm than the big firm.
3: Potentially, um, or or, or measure of firm value is you know it's it's based on stock value it's it's kind of the the value of the firm's stock compared to the value of their net assets and so we kind of look at the market value of the firm compared to you know what we call the book value of of their assets now with with private equity you know the harder thing is to figure out well what is the market value of of their equity and so the same takeaway would still apply in the sense that in capital markets, in a liquid setting, you know, the stock price that we see, you know, inherently includes investors somewhat price protecting for, for risks that they, they can't control. And, and so corruption is, is one of those risks, right. That you would try to price protect for, and so I think the same notion would still apply for, for private equity. You, as an investor going in, if you're worried about certain risks at the firm level or even at the local level that you cannot control, then you would price protect for that. You know, your goal there is to invest in the shares at a lower, at a lower price at a, or at a lower value than what you really think the the value is.
0: Okay. Do you think it's possible, and this is a very crazy question, um, to have sort of an unbiased calculation uh, that could be illustrated in some sort of accounting statement, either balance sheet or on the income statement or statement of cash flows, about political corruption and its effect on the firm value so that shareholders could see it more transparently? Is there a way to show it in an asset and liability format or not?
3: Uh, my answer it would, to that would be, would be no. It would be very unlikely to, to kind of come up with, and, and the key word you said there, unbiased <laughs> estimate.
0: Right. Um, yeah, it's got to be unbiased so that it can be measured across firms. Otherwise, it's useless, right?
3: Right. And the reason why it, it kind of would not be unbiased is because, you know, corruption is very unobservable. In our paper, the data that we have with respect to Department of Justice convictions, it's really just a tip of the iceberg because these are the folks that got caught. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not even seeing corruption that, that kind of goes on you know that never comes to light and so right. you know and that's a tricky thing with doing these type of studies the level of observability it's it's really just not there to right
0: so it could be th- it could be bigger than what you, you found
3: exactly you know what we find again on an average level is a very conservative estimate because corruption is is unobservable
0: right like so Michael Madigan is the Speaker of the House in Illinois and is also like the largest corporate property tax attorney and gets, saves companies millions of dollars, yet he writes the policy. So he's like double dealing, right? I mean, that's a like a a different type of corruption that you can't measure because nobody's going to convict Michael Madigan of doing that, right? I mean, is, is that sort of what you're talking about? Not specifically him. It could be anybody, but, you know.
3: Yeah, it could be anybody, and, you know, not to get too far down the political angle. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're only seeing, in our data, we can only see corrupt activities that actually kind of led to, to, to a conviction. And, you know, there's another right. slew of literature as well, just talking about the benefits and costs of, you know, even political lobbying, which... Right you know, people argue is kind of a legal form of of corruption. And Mm -hmm. so that's another side of, you know, political dealings that is not factored into ore or paper as well.
0: Right. And that's a whole nother can of worms. I mean, or kettle of fish. I mean, uh, you could talk about like sugar price supports and subsidies and the sugar barons and pulling them away and the political corruption around that. I'm sure there is some, um, but that's not what you're dealing with. Right. so, like, how would you expand on this research? What did you uncover that sort of made you more curious where you'd say, you know what, I really want to study that and delve into it a little deeper?
3: Well, I think, you know, from, from this study, um, and again, other studies have, have come out just kind of looking at, you know, different angles and different issues, you know, tied to, to corruption. You know, one other study that we started kind of embarking on as kind of an offshoot from this study is kind of looking more closely at kind of monitoring from, from the auditor standpoint with respect to how they manage corruption or, or factor in corruption with respect to the audit process. Because in our paper, we had a variable. You know, looking at external monitoring from from the auditors, you know it kind of didn't play out the way how we had wanted to with that variable, and so you know we've talked about and actually started working on a study, just kind of looking a bit more closely with respect to auditor monitoring of corrupt activities within a firm again corrupt activities at the firm level is is unobservable so we're trying to come up with a very innovative measure of <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, firm level corruption but it kind of ties into you know one of the auditors auditing standards actually touch on how should auditors factor in firms non-compliance with laws and regulations in in their audits and so it's, it's something that they do have to be mindful of. You know, the, of course, the auditing rules state that it's, it's not that they're supposed to go into a firm and try to ferret out, you know, corruption and, and non-compliance. Right. That's not their role. Right. But at the same right. time, you know, they do have some duty to pay attention to non-compliance with laws and regulations at the firm level and figure out, how that is affecting the financial reporting process?
0: Interesting. So, so let me ask. Let me throw a hypothetical situation out there. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer, but you're a professor of accountancy, so you can answer it better than anybody else. If if a government passes a regulation, and the business finds that that regulation is so onerous that they don't want to follow it is there civil disobedience within companies? Is that sort of a thing? I mean, we talk about that, you know, you know, as individuals, is it possible for companies to do that and just ignore that regulation and say, screw it. That's, that's an unfair law. Like if, if, you know, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, you could go back, everybody goes back to Hitler's Germany, which is a bad way to make an argument, but you could say, Mm -hmm. you know, Hitler's Germany said you can't hire Jews if I had a bunch of Jews that I had hired as a company, I may just ignore that because I need them to advance my business because they're great human capital, right? That's just one off the top of my head. But I'm sure there's thousands of different scenarios that you could come up with. You know, is it okay for a company to be civilly disobedient?
3: Well, my answer to that is is no. It it it's not a good thing to be civilly disobedient in the sense that the regulations that we see generally most of them do have an overarching purpose to either you know protect investors or protect employees you know when you think about about labor laws you know there's still a lot of social good kind of wrapped up into a lot of or or regulations even though firms would say you know too much regulation is is onerous I mean I can speak maybe a little bit more when when you know when thinking about securities laws and the regulations attached to security listings, et etc. The main purpose there is to make sure that investors are protected now, if we have just right. a broad swath of companies being civilly disobedient in in that end, then it brings to bear the question of are investors overall, will they be harmed by this? And so that's kind of you know, a question that we kind of have to, to think about.
0: I guess if we throw my example out, my poorly uh, framed mm-hmm. example, we could take it to a real world situation where, for instance, Google does not want to do business with the Department of Defense. And they feel like they're being civilly disobedient by doing it.
3: Right. Well do they have to do business with the Department of Defense? I mean, are they obligated? that's
0: a good question. I I don't think that anybody should. I mean, it's a private transaction, right? Um, Right. So I guess it could affect shareholder value, right?
3: Right. I mean, each firm will have to make its choice with respect to, you know, Working with governments and dealing with with governments in 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 cases where they 're not obligated to mm-hmm. do so, and again, they have to think about overall shareholder value and um, you know make choices in accordance with that
0: yeah and, and another example that popped into my head was a couple of years ago there was a a terror shooting and they had an iphone and the fbi wanted to hack into the iphone and apple said no because if we unlock it for you then it's going to unlock every iphone in the world and we don't want we don't want that and so they they didn't do that i guess that's another form of civil disobedience
3: yeah, which could yeah impact
0: which, shareholder value, I guess. We're kind of off on a tangent, I apologize.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one is a very gray area. <laughs> uh,
0: very, very interesting. Well, I think we'll wrap it up here. I really appreciate you coming on and very, very interesting. What's the title of your study so people could find it?
3: Political Corruption and U.S. Firm Value Do rents and monitoring matter
0: awesome and they can find you uh at the geese college of business yes
3: yes i'm in the accounting department at the geese college of business i hope you're
0: there for a very long time um yeah i plan
3: to end up my career here um this is a really energetic institution a lot of things are going on at the geese college of business Mm -hmm. of course really set off with the huge naming gift that we got from, from Larry Geese. So it's definitely transformational. And, um, you know, me, you know, working with the students here in my new role, uh, has definitely fueled my, my passion to, to stay in the profession for sure.
0: That's great. I'm so happy as an alum that you're a professor there. Um, and you can see why it's, you know, if not the top, one of the top accountancy programs in the United States and if not the world. I'm really glad that you are on the program today and I uh, look forward to meeting you in person when I show up for a football or, or basketball <laughs> game down there. Um, hopefully, love you'll get them going this year. But uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's been really a
3: loss. It was heartbreaking. <laughs> All know. right.
0: Great. Well, have a great day and thank you very much. I really appreciate it
3: all right, thank you. It was fun chatting about, about my study. Um, it's a prime example of, yes, I'm an accountant, but we do research that still kind of cuts the boundaries of economic issues that we all think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. And 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 like I say, I'll introduce you to the Stigler Center and, uh, and maybe even Ray Ball. He's an old friend of mine um, who you would love to meet and he would be very fascinated by uh, what you're doing. So,
1: Um, Yeah. Thank you very much. uh, Have a great day. All right. Thank you, traders. Thank you for making it to the bitter end of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We'd like to thank Narissa Brown very much for joining us. Now I'd like to transition to the part of the show where I get down on my knees and beg our listeners to subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. Hey, I understand that you're busy, but are you really that busy? So busy that you can't hit a button? I mean, who are you, Nick Saban? Are you unable to find joy outside of quantifiable accomplishments? Come on, stop working so hard. Relax, make yourself a rum punch and rate the Limit Up podcast on iTunes. You'll feel great. And if you have any leftover energy, I'd highly recommend you join our exclusive members-only Top Step Trader Facebook community and maybe do some volunteering in your community because studies show the greatest joy of all is rating podcasts on iTunes. But a close second choice is helping others. And being part of a community is also up there, so I certainly hope that you come back and join us next week when we'll have a brand new guest. But also feel free to reach out to me personally at jack at topsteptrader.com if you have any questions about the podcast or life in general. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend, everybody. So namaste and trade well.
0: This episode produced by Dante32.